3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Sonera and it's great to be hosting the show once again. Today we're putting on a Wednesday Brekkie's Best of 22, uh, Best of 2022, which includes some of our favorite interviews about um, from talking mushrooms to perinatal anxiety and depression, as well as conversations with Iranian and Australian women following the death of Masa Amini and the myth of Terranolius. But before that, we'll be right back with, after a short music break. Well, we know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been. And we know what we're knowing, but we can't say what we've seen. And we're not little children, and we know what we want, and the future is certain. Give us time to work it out. Yeah. We're on the road to nowhere. Come on inside. Take a night ride to nowhere. We'll take that ride. 
and that was The Road to Nowhere by Talking Heads. And up next, Professor Cade Field talking to Judith about mushrooms. Katie Field is a professor in plant soil processes at the University of Sheffield in the UK. And she's been looking at some of the research that, intriguingly, suggests that mushrooms actually have the ability to communicate with one another. The research she's referring to was conducted by computer scientist Andrew Adamatsky, director of the Unconventional Computing Laboratory of the University of the West of England. I began by asking Katie to explain, in layperson's terms, what Professor Adamatsky actually did to find out that mushrooms have an electrical language all their own and far more complicated than anyone previously thought. He's plugged tiny electrodes into fungus, basically. So he's plugged it into where they're growing from. And he's measured the electrical signals that have been transmitted across these filaments. And what he's found is spikes in those electrical signals, which look a lot like the spikes that you see in nerve cells. The patterning of those spikes is very similar to the ones that happen when animals are communicating. So when people are talking or when other types of animal are also sort of communicating with others of the same species. And so from that, he's kind of then applied this mathematical algorithm to it. And what he's found is that it looks really similar. The results are really similar to actual language with these spiking patterns being similar to words and forming even like what look like sentences. I think it's really important to point out though is that we don't understand what this language is or whether it really is actually a language or is it just sort of spikes in activity being transmitted across an organism. So again, we have to remember fungi are not like animals. They're not like plants. They're their own kingdom of organisms. And they actually exist as this series of filaments or tubes that grow either through the soil or decaying wood, or whatever it is that they happen to be feeding on. And these tubes are all interconnected, and they just kind of pass signals and nutrients across this sort of fungal mycelial network. It's not 100% clear whether these signals that are being detected actually are communication, or are they just kind of a pattern of it foraging? So it's, it's very mysterious, but also really, really interesting. Yeah, and also very science fiction almost. And I guess the next set of experiments to do is test whether the signals change, whether you have different patterning if you expose the fungus to a stress or if you give it some food, does it then start communicating where that food is to the rest of the fungal mycelia or is it just this background pulsating sort of electrical noise? Yes, another discovery you've noted from this research is that different species of mushrooms use different languages. Yeah. So the researcher in question, he measured these electrical spikes in different species of mushrooms. And what he found is that those different species transmitted these electrical spikes in different frequencies and amplitudes. Just There were different patterns according to what the species was. And so he kind of interpreted that as like a species specific language and that each species was communicating in its own special way. Again, I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical of it actually being a language and it might actually just be reflective of the way that fungus is growing or how it's transmitting information amongst its own sort of mycelial network. 
which I guess you can look at as a type of language. It all depends on what you define as what is communication, what is language. And we have to remember that like, they're almost like aliens to us, like they're, they're a totally different kingdom. They're as different to us as like plants are to fish, right? They're completely different. Yeah, for sure. But, but it does seem that they are communicating from this research. They're definitely transmitting information, which is fascinating, right? No one's ever seen that before or certainly not measured it in that way. I'm speaking with Professor Katie Field about the possibility that mushrooms are communicating and possibly communicate with words and sentences in what humans describe as a language. But I had some other questions for Katie. Some of the research you've discussed, it talks about underground networks of communication where mushrooms and mushrooms uh, communicate, but also mushrooms and plants are communicating with each other. Can you give me some examples? These are what we call mycorrhizal networks. So mycorrhizas, they're everywhere. And all that word means, it's a relationship between a fungus and a plant root. And nearly all plants around us have these associations in their roots. So when you're looking at a plant, you're actually really looking at a plant and fungus together. Traditionally, we've always considered mycorrhizal associations to be uh, related to plant nutrient uptake. So the fungus helps the plant get nutrients out of the soil because it's much better at doing that than plant roots. They're much finer, so they can get nutrients from smaller pores in the soil. Uh, they can also secrete sort of acids and digestive sort of enzymes and stuff um, that actually weather the minerals in the soil and extract nutrients and pass them to the plant the plant otherwise wouldn't be able to get. So in return, the plant gives the fungus carbon that it's it's fixed from photosynthesis so things like sugars and fats it gives it that organic carbon so they kind of have this mutualistic partnership between one another and they are like intimately associated so they grow the fungus grows inside the plant root and that they live together as one but recent research has shown that actually below ground these mycorrhizal fungal networks form between neighboring plants so they actually share a fungal partner so one fungus can be connecting the roots of one plant to another plant. What this research has shown recently is the plants are able to respond to what's happening to a neighbouring plant that's connected by a fungus. With the experiment I'm thinking of, they showed that when you apply a herbivore, so an aphid or another insect, to a plant that has a mycorrhizal fungal network connecting it to a neighbour, the neighbouring plant that doesn't have that aphid herbivore or that the other insects that's causing it damage, that plant starts emitting defensive compounds in response to its neighbour being attacked. So it kind of like the neighbour's sending this signal somehow through the mycorrhizal network, making the neighbouring plant respond and ward off pests. Wow. It sounds like communication. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. It's amazing. But I mean, we don't know how it does that. And I think what's exciting about the research with the language is that actually that kind of gives us a clue as to how those messages are being transmitted between neighboring plants, for example, how, how that sort of message might actually look in, in reality. So it could be that it's an electrical impulse that's actually informing neighboring plants so maybe plants are able to interpret this fungal language to then respond to external stresses so i think you've already begun to address this question but how would you counter the argument that the interpretation of these experiments uh, representing insights into fungal communication and uh, dare i say consciousness uh, to what extent are they merely forms of anthropomorphism mm. attributing human characteristics to non-human matter 
Yeah, I think it's really, really tempting to look at phenomena like this and see reflected in it things that we recognise, so our own language and the way that we form words and sentences. We have to remember that these organisms have evolved along a completely different trajectory to humans. What we recognise as language and consciousness could be very different in other organisms. Fungi don't have nervous systems. They don't have like a brain. But that doesn't mean there isn't some form of consciousness even. And it could be just that we don't recognise that. And I think although we're right to kind of be sceptical about literally translating what we're seeing as being a, a language, I think, I think we should be sceptical of that and we should sort of be critical and think about it in a very careful way. But I think also we should also be open to the idea that, you know, consciousness, it can be different to our own consciousness. And what we see isn't necessarily, or what we think of as consciousness, might not be the same across different kingdoms of life. Yes. And of course, mushrooms are are so old. Do they precede human life on Earth? Even older than plant life, right? They've been around for half a billion years at least. Fungi were probably present on Earth's terrestrial surfaces way before plants were. There's suggestion that they might even be up to a billion years old. So there was some fossil evidence of potential fungal structures that were dated to be around a billion years old. I think we can definitely say they were around at least half a billion years ago, which is way before humans, animals, or plant life was on Earth's land masses. As a lot of research suggests that actually fungi were responsible for helping bring plants onto the land out of the water. So they've played this huge important part in the evolution of ecosystems. You conclude your paper by saying these results could represent the first insights into fungal intelligence and even consciousness, as as you have said already, and that that is a very big could. But depending on the definitions involved, the possibility remains, though it would seem to exist on timescales, frequencies and magnitudes, not easily perceived by humans. So, Katie Field, do you think fungi are about to take over the world? I think fungi already have taken over the world. I think they took over the world half a billion years ago. When we we look at a mushroom, we think we're looking at fungi but we're not the mushroom is just the tip of the iceberg they pervert that they exist on every continent they exist in the water they're born in the air and they kind of they take every possible form you can imagine from invisible tiny single cells right through to huge mushroom reproductive structures and the largest organism on earth is a fungus right it's a honey fungus it's 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 kilometers long i think we live in a fungal world i don't think there's any doubt about that Professor Katie Field from the University of Sheffield in the UK. Myco Lyco is an outfit that creates meditation music. They used biodata sonification and a Eurotrack synthesizer to listen in as two blocks of blue oyster mushrooms well communicated. So we'll hear a small segment of the blue oyster mushrooms and follow that with Mushroom Vibes, a chill-out piece by Lo-Fi Hip Hop Mix to take you home, or, if you're already home, to relax. Here's the blue oyster mushrooms. See which piece you like best.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that was Judith speaking to Professor Katie Field about new research suggesting mushrooms have the ability to communicate with each other through an electrical language all on its own, and it's some truly fascinating stuff. Up next, Claudia speaks with Julie Birkenoff about perinatal anxiety and depression in Australia. This morning we're going to hear from a family and parenting expert who specialises in supporting new and expecting parents with the emotional challenges around pregnancy and birth. Julie Bornenkoff is a clinical psychologist who has worked across primary and tertiary settings with people from vulnerable and diverse communities. She currently leads the team at PANDA, also known as the Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, which supports the mental health and well-being of new and expecting parents. She joins me now to talk about the particular mental health challenges experienced by fathers and those in fathering roles and the support services available to help. Good morning, Julie. How are you? Very well. How are you? Really well, thank you, on this cold morning in Melbourne. (laughs) Welcome to breakfast. Can we start off by uh, asking you to explain what is meant by the term perinatal and what makes this period so emotionally challenging for new and expecting parents? Most definitely. So when we talk about perinatal, um, the perinatal period, we're talking about the period where the the couple are pregnant um, or the family are pregnant and then we're talking about the 12 months to 24 months following on from the birth of their baby. Um, And, you know, as many people who have known or been through that time in their life know, you know, for some it starts even pre-pregnancy in the lead up to planning to have a baby. But all of the pressures that people experience, all of the the joys and the family, you know, connections, but then all of the overwhelming feelings throughout that period put so much pressure on the individual at the time. Yeah, it's a huge uh, period of change and Mm. sort of without realising it, you bring a lot of pre-existing expectations and sort of mapping about how you expect things to to be and uh, it it rarely goes exactly to plan. Oh, exactly. You know, and as we talk to our callers to our national helpline, which, you know, Panda delivers and has delivered for many years, nobody comes to the parenting period, as you just said, without bringing forward their backpack of crap, as I like to call it, <laughs> um, that has all of those historical, you know, influences, the way you were parented, the things that you pressurised in life, and, you know, there's lots of those for everyone right now um, that, you know, impact on you in this time. Yeah, and then you add all the your own parents' expectations yeah. and <laughs> the messages and advice you get from every second person you bump into at the yeah. at the time. Yeah. So, how aware and prepared are new and expecting fathers for the emotional side of parenting? Yeah, look, I'm really pleased to see that, or say, you know, that we are starting to see more dads open up but also understand that for them the rockiness of the ups and downs and the love and the hate of being an expecting or new parent are kind of more forefront and, um, you know, centre of their mind. Historically, the focus has always been on the mum and, you know, that we've kind of as a country but also internationally been exploring mum's mental health and wellbeing throughout all of their normal health checks. 
and all of the appointments that mums have. But we're now realising that for, in order to have a healthy mum, you have to have a healthy partner that's supporting them. And for them, some of people, that's a dad, and for some, that's a, you know, a same-sex birth partner. You know, it's, it's families, as we know, are so different right now. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. But we do know that the impacts for dads um, or partners are you know, there and that they experience exactly the same mental ups and downs and they need to be supported during this period. And what feelings do you find cause the most distress and challenge in these early years? So we know that, you know, generally the feelings of anxiety and depression are most, you know, uh, prevalent and most common for dads. Um, and when we talk about those, we, you know, are talking about that really increased feeling of stress, of pressure, not being able to let go of the thoughts around, you know, what kind of dad I'm going to be, whether I'm going to be good at it, whether I'm going to be connected, whether I'm going to be able to support them financially is a big one for people calling a helpline right now. Um, you know, whether or not the issues I encountered throughout my life are going to come back to sort of haunt new parent. Um, People who and dads who are experiencing pressure at this time, we know have a tendency to overwork during the pregnancy period while they try to find a way to feel functional um, because ultimately new parents are entering a whole new identity phase of their life and as we know when we take on a new identity or change our identity, we need to find confidence in that um, and that takes time. So the pregnancy period is a really difficult one when people feel disconnected and withdrawn from the usual things that they like to do in life but also are trying to cling to the things that make them feel functional and that's quite normal during this period. Mm. And I read that um, sometimes feelings of shame and isolation can result mm. during this this period and that can also make people less likely to sort of share what's going on and to mask their true sense of well-being. Mm, most definitely. And, you know, as a society, we all try to avoid the things that do us harm or hurt us. And so, as you said, those feelings of disconnect from the usual things that somebody would enjoy or those feelings that they're not doing a good job or maybe failing in some way are things that we as natural human beings want to be avoiding. Um, so unfortunately, the way that people tend to do that is withdrawing from social connections, withdrawing from the things that make them feel good about themselves, like they're going to the gym or engaging with sports or getting out, you know, in the fresh air. Um, people tend to bury themselves away and overwork when they're feeling like this, especially our dads. Um, and all of those things, when you think about them, you know, as one big kind of way of coping, really do go against people feeling healthy and well. Um, but we also know that dads are kind of already on the back foot in that they just don't have as good a language as explaining what it is they're going through. You know, they've not been taught historically um, for many of the dads of this generation around how to explain when they're feeling vulnerable or how to have those conversations. Um, and I know from, you know, those that call our helpline that they're expected to be the rockers of family and they find that really overwhelming. Mm, I was going to ask you about those traditional sort of masculine social mm. constructs and, and where you feel society is at in breaking down those tropes. I think, you know, the conversations I get to have as a CEO of an organisation that does this amazing work in this space is really showing that 
uh, we are no longer expecting dads to be, you know, taking up those roles of not mm. being able to express themselves or reach out for help. And we also know for mums calling our helpline and partners that they, you know, acknowledge and understand that dads are struggling and really want to be able to support guiding them to the right, you know, help um, and understanding of them what it is they're experiencing. And, you know, we're also really noticing a trend in more and more dads reaching out for help and acknowledging that they don't have the right words to do so, to explain what it is they're going through. So Panda, as an example, has a really great mental health checklist on our website for new and for expecting dads, which goes through 30 questions and then gives them a printout to give them some of that language to be able to then have a conversation or seek support. And we know dads are really benefiting from having access to that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And just related to that, uh, it's not always easy for people to distinguish between what are normal feelings and behaviours. And, you know, you do get lots of people around you during those birth, pregnancy, early years who are trying to be positive, I suppose, and sort of, and understanding, but in, at the same time, uh, it might make it difficult for you to, to know whether what you're feeling is uh, something that's going to pass or whether it's more serious and you need to reach out. Um, so that sounds like a really good tool that you have on your website to assist uh, parents identify I guess what they're going through and to give them that vocabulary and and a sort of a guideline to 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 where um, they need to to go with their thoughts and actions yes most definitely and you know we know that there's every symptom you would normally identify around anxiety and depression is also one of the byproducts of having a new baby you know whether it's disrupted sleep or not being able to find time to care for yourself not being able to eat you know all of those things we know are just disrupted when you have a new baby and you're focusing in on that little butt whether you're you know mentally well or not um so you're exactly right and having access to tools and supports like panda is so important at this time and I wanted to also ask you about inclusiveness because, as we know, we sort of talk about fathers as if they're a monolithic <laughs> single group, but there is such a diversity of people uh, performing different roles, different circumstances, biological, non-biological. Mm. What are the additional social barriers faced by people that are operating in non-traditional family structures and how do you work to make this an inclusive space for everybody? Yeah, uh, look, it's such a great question. And look, at Panda, we're really proud of the work that we get to do with our LGBTIQ plus families and our families who feel themselves that they just don't fit the norm. And, you know, really what is normal in today's society um, you know, our team love to do the work that they get to do with any individual that calls our helpline. Um, and we know that families and, and couples and parents come in all shapes and sizes. Um, but you're exactly right. You know, societally, when we look at even wrappers in the supermarket, you know, on baby products, they're all a man and a woman smiling brightly, generally blonde, you know, with their babies and just happy. Um, so societally, we set up people to, you know, really feel this sense of failure regardless of how they identify um, because not many people do identify with the marketed and kind of cultural images that we portray. Um, I think regardless of that, we know the experience of, you know, non-traditional parents and, you know, same-sex parents are very much, you know, the same experience that we have for 
um, dad in terms of their scores on any of our symptom inventories. Um, but when we start to layer trauma and access to care issues and non-inclusive practice so that when people do get, you know, the guts to go out and seek support, that, that they're not then being, you know, outed or treated differently or having to educate the healthcare provider. Those pressures just, you know, place significant burden onto people. And we really want the space to be one where it doesn't matter who you are, you get access to care and that your mental health and well-being is mm. assessed and, you know, that you're given the right supports. And Panda is really proud to be one of those supports for all communities. Yes, and uh, you talked about the tool for identifying um, your mental health status. What are the other services that are offered by Panda to parents and families? Yeah, so Panda, as I said, has a mental health checklist that sits on our website that people access through all hours of the day and night. Um, we also have an amazing range of tools and resources that are used by community and used by health professionals on our website. So if you do know somebody you think that's struggling, you can go online and get some information to give them. Uh, we also have a Panda Learning Hub that houses, you know, community education and, and resources there for people to be able to do at their own pace um, that can allow them either to support other people in their mum's group or themselves um, or their partners. Um, and we have a national helpline, which anyone can call between the hours of 9am and 7.30pm Monday uh, to Friday, so and Saturday, and that's via 1300 726. And we have an amazing team of counsellors who have both clinical or lived experience or and lived experience um, and they man our helpline and provide really great support to getting people uh, onto our service and support, understanding what it is they're going through, providing them with some support and then connecting them up with local services in the event that they don't want to continue on to seek support from our team. That sounds fantastic. So um, definitely uh, reach out if you feel like those services are of, of help in your situation. Thank you very much for sharing all of that with us, Julie. It's a really important role that you're performing and it's great to see that there's an organisation de dedicated just to that very vital uh, but uh, what can be quite a frayed time of to new and expecting parents in all their uh, forms and family structures so thank you very much and uh, we'll be putting uh, those helpline numbers and information notes in our uh, program show notes thanks so much thank you julie if you or someone you know is suffering from perinatal anxiety and depression, you can call the Panda National Helpline at 1300 726 306. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Up next, Jacob with reports on the mass protests in Iran to bring an end to their oppressive regime following the death of Masa Amini who was killed at the hands of the Iranian morality police for not wearing her headscarf. It's a name that's being chanted across the world. On September 16, 2022, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian woman, 
died in the custody of Iran's morality police under suspicious circumstances. Iranian authorities claim she died of a heart attack, but Amini's family tell a different story, that she was abused by police in their custody. Since then, protesters have been organising every week in Iran and many countries across the world, calling for an end to the mandatory hijab, and by extension, an end to Iran's repressive regime. Today, the voices of Iranian women from Nam, Melbourne. Hi, my name is Delaram Ahmadi, and I'm an Iranian-Australian woman. Delaram Ahmadi is an actress and an activist. Since the Islamic Revolution of 1979, Iran has existed as an Islamic Republic. So can you tell us a bit about what this style of government looks like? Well, this government is a theocracy. The rules uh, are based on the um, Islamic rules. Who who sets these rules uh, is the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. And everything goes through um, the supreme leader, even, uh, even if people vote for... Uh, presidents, um, the, pre- the candidates go through the supreme leader's um, uh, decision. So women have um, very limited rights in, under these rules. For example, uh, they have to have a certain dress, dress code, and they have to have a full scarf and um, also... Uh, uh, cover all their bodies and uh, wear loose clothes. And um, if they don't do that, they will arrest them. Sometimes in some cases they get killed, which we see now. And also uh, women don't have divorce rights, uh, whereas men have in, in the Islamic Republic. So a man can just say they want a divorce and they can divorce their wives but the women have to go through court and um, the judge uh, makes the decision. And this decision is going to be based on if the husband is um, uh, mentally ill or addicted or um, basically um, not well to be a husband. So a a woman can't just not want to be married to, to, to a man. They have to have a valid reason. Um, women can't travel without the permission of their husbands. They have to um, have the signature of their uh, husbands to get a passport or if they want to travel. The women in Iran get, um, men in Iran get twice as much inheritance as females. And the list goes on. (laughs) I can can tell you so many of these rules that... um, demolish women's rights in Iran. I know the morality police have quite an important role to play uh, in this story. Can you tell us a bit about who they are and what purpose they serve? Yes, well, so, um, as I said, um, the Islamic Republic is a theocracy. So the whole system based their pillars on uh, women's dress code. You know, so when the uh, Islamic Republic started, uh, they 
put the dress code on women and that's their symbol of the power of the whole system, right? So in order for them to be in power and show their power to people, the world, they need to make sure that um, women comply to these dress codes. So they put um, morality police um, to police around uh, women for their dress code. And these um, polices, they're not trained. Uh, so when you say morality police, don't imagine like uh, trained police officers uh, coming to do this job and they're like trained me- mentally and physically. They're not. They're actually anyone in the street can go and um, apply for the job and they could just get them as morality police. And these people could be criminals, could be um, pedophiles, could be anything. They're not, they don't go through any psychological tests or anything, you know? So um, basically these people just um, have a van and police around women and they could just point out to anyone that they don't like how they dress and um, arrest them. And that could mean um, if they wear their scarf too loosely or if they have nail polish on or like a, like a really um, bright nail polish could be a crime. Mm-hmm. Or um, like a very, um, like a really, um, like a lot of makeup as well. Like it, it could be anything. It's just based on what they think um, is mora- moral, like morally correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, when they arrest women, they take them to the um, uh, the police station and they ask them to um, they ask them uh, to call their families to bring them the um, acceptable dress code. And they could they could have any type of behavior when they arrest them on the way in the van, or even at the police station. The morality police actually um, uh, could arrest you based on your relationship with uh, a male as well, like a female and a male. You can't be to get seen, be seen together if you're not married at, in public. Uh, but yeah, so this time they actually um, uh, killed a girl in September on September 16th. Uh, her name was uh, Gina Massa Amini. Uh, they picked up on her. They pick on her because um, she was wearing her hijab too loosely. And um, from the photos that you see everywhere, um, there's like photos everywhere on social media. Um, from what she looks looked like um, at the time, it's it's not like she was wearing anything uh, really uh, revealing or anything. Um, and they beat her to death uh, while she was in custody. And this uh, started an uprising in Iran. But the only reason, uh, but the reason for this uprising that started wasn't only because of this one incident. It's a long time history because um, when this regime started uh, in Iran, even even the rules they they even the things that they said um, they're going to do, the morals they they said they're um, based on, they don't even follow those morals. Um, they're they've been stealing money from people from the oil, 
uh, um, we have Iran has so much oil that people, if people got that money from selling the oil, no one would be um, poor. But you see a lot of poor people, a lot of homeless people in Iran. Um, people uh, don't have uh, meat to eat. They can't have meat. And, and what they said about people were unhappy about the situation. And you know what they said? The government said, oh, it's better to go vegetarian anyways. That's what the answer was to people that didn't have food to eat. But anyway, so um, the uprising um, uh, is based on the anger of people uh, for putting up with so much brutality and so much injustice for 43 years. And um, this was uh, not the first uprising. A lot of uprisings happened before that as well. But um, um, this uprising was just um, the end of um, of people's patience. And I think the government being so brutal about the um, uh, protests uh, is adding to people's anger every day. And uh, every time government kills one person, people get angrier and angrier and uh, go to streets more. Absolutely. And we know after the tragic death um, of Massa Amini in September, as you said, there's been a massive movement um, across Iran, but also around the world. I mean, can you tell us a bit about what's been unfolding in the last two months and what these protesters are calling for? Uh, Well, yes. So uh, a lot of people in diaspora, a lot of Iranians in diaspora, um, are very devastated because um, they see the videos of their, um, their peers, their families, their friends in Iran getting killed, um, and they, they want to do something. Obviously, they can't go back, and um, they, we all decided to um, uh, do protests um, in diaspora in other countries and call for um a death of the Islamic regime uh, because um the main reason of um, a lot of us Iranians in diaspora immigrating is uh, running away from the brutality and uh, brutal and injustice um, rules of the Islamic Republic and um, uh, we basically go and protest every weekend and call for action. Um, from our representatives, we want um, our politicians, uh, for example, us in Australia, we want our politicians to cut ties with the Islamic regime, to um, freeze their assets, to not let them in the country, to put IRGC uh, as a terrorist group, and, um, and basically yeah, cut down all the relationships with the country. So there's more pressure on the Islamic regime. Mm. But what we want is the end of this dictatorship and we want democracy for Iran. You're listening to 3CR. We just heard from Iranian activist Delaram Ahmadi about the situation in Iran and why so many people are protesting following the death of Masa Amini. Hello, my name is Ida. 
I am 28, I guess, uh, from Iran, Tabriz. It's located on the northwest of Iran. I work as a graduate architect, and I'm a queer performer slash <laughs> architect. I don't know. Hi, so um, I'm Nazanin. I grew up in Tehran, uh, and I just turned 29. Oh. Uh, and I work in the Victorian government in transport. And what is your favorite part about Iranian culture? Oh, I have a good answer for this. My favorite part, I was thinking about this question, and I was like, you know, you can't say food, you can't say, like, you know, the dances or the culture, but for me, it's this word, mehmuni. <laughs> it means party, but it's not a, like a dupes, dupes, dupes party. It's like a family party. It's like the family coming together and having, like, amazing food, and, yeah, you might end up dancing at some point, unexpected. I kind of have a love and hate relationship to Iran because um, as a queer person I had a very difficult life back home I didn't came out like till I moved here and um, honestly it's very hard for um, LGBTQA family uh, to live in Iran kind of but um, I love Iran <laughs> although I hated it when I was living there at some point and I think what I love about Iran the most is uh, how it's engaged with art. Like, Iran has a very, um, um, like, um, one of the richest art heritages in the world. And even the um, photography, the uh, cinema photography or everything is very beautiful. And um, even our language is very poetic, I guess. When people hear it, they're like, oh, oh. <laughs> It must be really emotional seeing all of the images of what's happening back home. I mean, we were having a discussion about this before with about the protest movement and how it feels really profound. There's a lot of solidarity work happening internationally. Mm. What does this protest mean for you? I mean, what are your hopes for the future of Iran? Um, first of all, seeing that this movement is a very... It started as a feminist movement yeah. in Iran. It really warms my heart. And saying that, like, okay, people are standing for women. Good. And um, That was refreshing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's very empowering and amazing to see people are united for women's rights at the beginning. But now it's, like, more... It's, like, there are various reasons that people are protesting outside and um, um, fighting against, like shoulder to shoulder it's very it's very um i don't know i'm very emotional about this um but um does it make you feel hope are you hopeful i i'm i am hopeful and i'm yeah i'm i cannot wait to dance under azadi tavern with my old friends and celebrate freedom yeah. yeah, I was just telling Jacob I've been having this kind of like very vivid daydreams that <laughs> it will be a revolution, there will be a change, and yeah. like you know, I can go back and like do something for my country, do like you know, you know teach in a school or mm. like you know, do a little bit on this part of the government or that like a public of the park public service, and like yeah, give something back and. Um, be safe while doing it. I kind of tried to learn, okay, how do I keep myself alive in this regime? 
I don't go to the protest. Don't go to Azadi Street. Don't go to Engelab Street. Don't like, you know, do this thing. Don't say that thing. Don't associate with that people. Okay, you're safe. But the morality police are on the street all the time. They're the only form of police that they have interacted, I have interacted with in 20-something years of living in Iran. Mm. And um, they were actually <laughs> the reason that I lost hope in uh, building a life for myself as a woman in my country. Mm. The day before, so for going to university in Iran, after you do your high school, we all have to take a national exams, like a really big exams, four-hour sitting test of everything you have learned in the last four years of high school. It's serious. Everyone, like, you know, studies for it for years and, like, you know, they prepare for it. Oh, fuck that. The day before it, <laughs> the day before it, uh, kind of like this teacher of mine, they <laughs> told us, yeah, you know, you have studied for more than a year, like nonstop. The day before is when you need to, like, go and do something fun and rest. So my dad took me and my brother... And it was like, you know, hang around in the city and we went to a couple places. And at the end of the day, we were coming out of this shopping center and there was a morality police. I was 17. I always wore very baggy pants and baggy like tops and everything. I was like tomboy style. Just everything was just so loose. You really couldn't see my body through it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, one of them came towards me and she was like, my sister. And I was like, yes. And then she was like, do you think what you're wearing is proper? And I haven't registered yet that they're actually, like, you know, gonna, uh, like, find me or, like, take me away or, like, all of that. I That was, like, my first time interacting with them. I haven't registered. Oh, I'm grown up enough to be arrested by these people now. Mm. And my dad just ho hold my hand and he started shouting at them, kind of, like, creating this diversion. And, yeah, they respected the man more than anyone else around. And he just, like, took me around, took me away with my brother. And yeah, the day after that, during the national exam, I cried for mm. more than half of it. I had really high hopes to get good grades and like, you know, go into a, uh, my top choice. I didn't. I fucked up that exam. I got not a good grade. And I was crying because I was thinking to myself that doesn't matter how much how much I how hard I work doesn't matter how hard I work to become somebody uh, important in this country yeah. I will never be respected as a woman I will never have equal rights as a woman what am I killing myself for these morality policies are always around and they're always like they're just waiting somewhere to you know attack you in a way and um yeah I've been um questioned by them so many times but my tactic was always like um cry hysterically and so they will like be like oh my god <laughs> like sometimes they would leave like let you go but the way they treat people is so shit they treat you like a criminal and like one thing as you mentioned they don't respect women as much as they respect men honestly well in islam in other in the quran it it says that women is half men so what you expect from a society that it's already told like written that um women is half men so of course they're not gonna respect you of course like all the feelings that Nazanin was saying that she had at the exam i had all of those as well i had to shout harder i had to always be louder mm. to be acknowledged with from the people around me and as I am a queer open-minded 
person feminist who's always been loud and like you know always fought for my rights i've always have also been under attack even if um um i didn't do anything and i just existed There's been a lot of international solidarity, yeah. um, as we said before, and I know the two of you have been somewhat involved in the solidarity movement here in mm. Melbourne. Mm. Um, tell us a bit about what that's been like and, and what have you all been up to? Um, I think, like, you know, uh, almost all the protests in Melbourne that I've been to, uh, it always felt like the community itself, us Iranians, we needed group therapy. <laughs> we are going to it as group therapy for us because yeah, yeah we're like all impacted and yeah. uh, you know other people don't understand what's going to us what's mm. happening to us uh, and yeah especially at the beginning people kept making circles and chanting at each other kind of like it was a really uh, spiritual experience at some points we just keep chanting say her name Masa Amini Masa mm. Amini woman life freedom chants like that I've been to majority of them. Um, um, it's as as Nazarene was saying. It's very um, like I don't have a strong connection to lots of Iranians here. I don't know many of them, but being in an environment with Iranians and shouting for the same thing was very nice. And um, also, lots of my non-Iranian friends also joined us, and it really surprised me in a way that like ah, oh, hmm, they care as well. Hmm, but um. I've seen people like engaging with it and talking about it, but um, I don't see many people posting about it or writing about it on Twitter or Instagram or any any other places, especially mm. in Australia. And I have asked my like I am a person who doesn't like post stuff on my Instagram a lot, but since all of this has happened, every day you see me ten stories like um, sharing and stuff. But like when I ask my non-Iranian friends why most of them are not engaging with this. Some of them said that, oh, you know, um, it's not um, we just also scared of being judged by others because this is, uh, if you're posting about it, it's fine, you're Iranian, you have a, a ver like, you, you can talk about mm -hmm. it, but when people gonna call me out and be like, what do you have to say about this? But then it's, I'm like, well, what did you have to say with Ukraine? What did, why did you stand with uh, BLM? Like, isn't this like, and especially feminists, I'm like, dude, you, how the fuck you call yourself a feminist or even a, I don't know, a human who you, like, things that happening in, in Iran are horrible and like you're witnessing them even like the way I'm posting I have like um I check my stories I see that people like at least 300 people or, or 400 people see it and like I don't see many of them like be engaging with this and it's I'm like hmm uh, I, I think we mm. need solidarity from uh, other more established uh, activist groups mm -hmm. in Australia because yet yeah, they have the infrastructure they have like you know the resources uh, and the knowledge of how to put together information for a campaign and like you know which politician to talk to or how to talk to them all of that um the 
people who have organized the protest in Iran, no, for, sorry, for Iran in Melbourne, the people who have organized the protests for Iran in Melbourne, uh, they're kind of like, you know, building the plane and flying it at the same time. Mm. And um, yeah, it's like, a, it's taking a lot of work. Even I have participated in the protests. I have like made a couple banners. I have made a couple graffitis on a wall. I have like, you know, done little smaller things here and there. And even that has taken over all of my life and everything, like all of the resources I have available to me. So this is hard work and there is no time to rest. Uh, we do need help. There's been this chant um, that I think has been kind of adopted as the catch cry, right? Like, women, life, life freedom. freedom. Um, when you hear that chant, how do you feel or what comes to your mind? I have I heard it first time in these protests and it was new for me. It was showing very clearly that the key to solving our problems start from women, start from person that can create life and that is how you get to freedom that's how i got that's what i'm seeing in it and every time people chanted uh makes me very emotional yeah same for me um i i love hearing it especially in farsi it's again poetic <laughs> it's it's zan zendegi azadi which um like putting women and freedom next to each other is a thing that I didn't have back home. And like seeing people are saying, oh, no, we got to fight for it. And um, every time, like there is this um, strong image of a woman um, holding her hand up with her hair and um, like the cut up hair that people like women in, when uh, they're cutting their hair up yeah. because of this movement. Um, it's that that I'm always like, OK, hmm. We gotta, you gotta keep going. You gotta, you gotta push for this. You gotta ask for the freedom that you didn't have. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful. It makes me hopeful. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was Jacob Gamble with a report there with Dilaram. Aida and Nazanin, who are three Iranian-Australian women standing up to this oppressive regime in Iran. Up next, Grace Tan speaks with Jordan Zhao, former digital strategist for the ABC and SBS, about their book, which discusses online conspiracy theories or quote-unquote selfie-obsessed narcissists that clutter our social media feeds and how to stop it all. A lot of us have probably encountered an anti-vaxxer or self-obsessed narcissist who clutter our social feeds, online conspiracy theorists, or a child who has their face buried into their smartphones. And some of us might have may live with one. We know this happens a lot, and but have we tried to pull people or even ourselves back from the brink of digital abyss? 
Joining me this morning is Jordan Zhao, who's the formal digital strategist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and head of social media for the special broadcasting service. Discussing his newly released book, Disconnect, and we're going to be looking at and on it and to have a slight understanding of being pushed to extremes online. Uh, hi, Jordan. How are you? Hi, Grace. Good to be with you. Good to be with you today. Um, so your book actually just released yesterday, so very, very exciting. Could you give yeah. us a slight brief explanation of what Disconnect is about? Absolutely. So the book is called Disconnect, Why We Get Pushed to Extremes Online and How to Stop It. And so really, it's about some of the most urgent issues we're seeing as a result of the way the internet and social media is currently set up. And as you alluded to earlier, the way it's structured is around some personas that encapsulate those issues. So for example, people like online conspiracy theorists who fall down the rabbit holes of conspiracies, you know, freedom fighters, the people who protest lockdown mandates and vaccines, social media narcissists, trolls, screen addicts, etc. And the idea is that we all know somebody like this now, and, you know, they're not crazy people from far away. You know, they're really one degree removed. You know, often they're, you know, people that we uh, might actually really care about, and sometimes it might actually affect us personally. So, you know, it really felt like there was an escalation of these sort of characters and these sort of issues, and so the book is really shining a light on what's actually happening because we're starting to see it all around us. Yes, definitely. And yeah, it definitely covers a lot on different people and what they have been, I would say, believing about online. And so what what made you think of writing this book? Well, how, how did you start with it? Yeah, so I've been researching these issues for a while. But uh, the reason for the book is because it really felt like there was an escalation, uh, particularly over the last few years. So, you know, we know there are problems with disinformation and fake news. We know the way the internet is currently set up is quite harmful. But what I started to see was an uptick of these characters over the last few years. And, and that idea that we all know somebody like this now really started to get validated. And so I interviewed, you know, a lot of different people. And yeah, they, they all said, you know, this is either affecting me directly or I definitely know somebody who's like this. So it felt like there was something bigger going on that we needed to discuss and that what the book is about is really trying to unpack what's happening and that a lot of it has to do with the technology and the design of the current setup of the internet. Jordan, it's Judith here. Um, hi. I, hi. And, uh, and look, thanks for this book. I'm really looking forward to reading it because I think I can benefit from it myself. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm curious, you mentioned your interviews. How did you locate your people to interview? Yeah, a lot of different ways. So, you know, obviously I, I had to be careful. Um, so firstly, I, you know, the, the interviews are anonymized. So um, a lot of the case studies have their names changed. But what was actually surprising is that there's a lot of them around. So, you know, if you go onto certain forums or even if you go onto like Instagram and follow a specific hashtag, for example, you know, it, it's quite easy to find um, people who are, you know, very concerned with a particular. So, you know, to give you one specific example, 
Yeah, last year we saw a lot of protests against the lockdowns and mandates, and often, you know, those people were actually very happy to share their experiences online through a hashtag or live stream their experience. So they're actually quite easy to find. And I, I guess that was one of the surprising things about going through this process. Is like I was saying, it kind of these characters are sort of all around us now. They're not. They're not far away at all. It's it's happening kind of everywhere. Yes, I see. And and then also after you have found these people and uh, talked to them about things uh, regarding their experiences. So we, we can tell that this book uh, is obviously based on um, personal case studies and like a lot of them cover different different topics. Like some of them came from maybe believing about the um, and, uh, vaccination and maybe some is about something regarding uh, any online conspiracy theories that are about... Uh, maybe children bring abuse or something. And then it, it's obviously all really different personal uh, stories that happen. And so how did you try to um, connect to understand the psychological aspect and, and your expertise as a tech person, especially because your, 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 your job is as a digital strategist, so you might not really understand on the psych- psychological aspect? Yeah, definitely. So there's, there's a lot of research or there's a growing body of research being developed that looks at how harmful the current setup of the internet is. So, you know, the structure of each chapter is, as you mentioned, you know, there are a few case studies because it's always really interesting listening to other people's stories. But then I do go into quite a bit of detail about, you know, the underpinning psychology behind it or what's the latest research on, for example, addiction or online radicalization. And I wanted to make sure to connect the two so that, you know, it, firstly, so that it's credible and that what we're seeing is actually a bigger phenomenon that's happening and it's to do with how the current setup of the internet is is developed. And I should say that uh, each chapter also focuses a lot on solutions, but I wanted to make sure that I don't just present the problems and that there's actually, uh, you know, a lot that we can do to do these things. So it, I'm not just, you know, doom and gloom. I wanted to make sure that people felt like, you know, if they do encounter these issues themselves, that there's something they can do about it. Yes, and obviously, yeah, definitely one of the main things that we want to bring up from this book is um, how do we stop it? How do we stop these people from being pushed to extremes online? Was it was it a very uh, was it very complicated to get into that expect um, get to that part? of trying to find solutions? Yeah, I think there's a lot of work that we need to do, for sure. And um, each chapter has two types of recommendations, so mm-hmm. what we can do as individuals to try and address it. But really, I think a lot of the work has to be done at an institutional level. So what, what kind of regulation does government have to put in place? You know, what kind of restrictions do we need to put in place in the tech platforms themselves? Because obviously they're the ones who are facilitating this. So I think a lot of it has to do with actually making sure or forcing the digital platforms like Facebook, like YouTube, to start to address this directly because it shouldn't have to fall on us as individuals to sort out this mess. A lot of it really should be done at a, at a group, at an institutional uh, level. So each chapter has two types of recommendations to make, to make sure that people feel like there's something they can do about it. Mm, definitely. And then, and, and, so, 
Sorry, Judith, go <laughs> we're, ahead. We're just looking at each other. So I, I, I wanted to say it's so encouraging um, to, to, to know that there are some things people can do. Because there's so many stories that you feel a little bit helpless about afterwards. And uh, it's good to know that there are some possible strategies. It's not all on us. But I guess it is on us to some extent to lobby our members of parliament and lawmakers. That's right. So I think we need to come at it from from both angles, as you say. You know, it, it, uh, you, for example, if you're going through this, you, do you have to wait until the next legislation is put in place? You know, that's probably going to take a long time. So you do. There are some things that individuals have to do themselves, and there are some things that you know institutions have to do. But hopefully, I provided both of those types of recommendations in the book. Mm, definitely. And then, yeah, now, now it just comes down to the main question. Uh, why, why do people get disconnected from reality, you know? And the whole thing about the book is about people being disconnected. Is there, is there a reason why that's the case? I think so. It's, it's obviously complex. But what we're starting to see is that the way social media in particular and the current digital platforms, so, so the biggest tech platforms, the way... They prey on some of our um, innate vulnerabilities. So, you know, for example, um, during the pandemic, obviously people were, you know, very worried and concerned. But, you know, that fear was kind of twisted online and, you know, it, to the point where um, it became an issue. So particularly what a lot of we're seeing with conspiracies is, you know, you might start with one video that's kind of a little bit unconventional because you're curious. But the way social media platforms are set up is it keeps feeding you videos like that and it keeps feeding you more and more extreme versions so that there's definitely um, a funneling process. And, you know, often we refer to these as rabbit holes because you sort of get stuck, you know, like so you might be curious or worried about something. But if you keep spending um, time on those platforms, they keep shoving the same sort of conspiracy videos and it keeps escalating and then, you know, next thing you know, very quickly, you know, you're full of these quite dangerous and harmful thoughts. So there's definitely something in the design of the platforms that's escalating that process, even though it might start outside of it. So I, I, I do place a lot of the focus on the technology platforms of today. Mm, I see. Yep. Yeah, I think it's it's still quite hard to understand and know and think why people... Um, get disconnected that way but obviously um, maybe it's because of personal experiences and again uh, we try to emphasize that this is all based on personal experience uh, personal stories that all different at all differ and I think that's where the complication comes in trying to understand how do we try to solve uh, solve the solution I mean solve the situation for each person right yeah definitely yep um, yep Sorry, um, it was a bit the uh, connection there. But, yeah. Oh, I, I was saying, and yeah, you're right in that everybody's experience is, is a little bit different, but there are common patterns that I sort of saw throughout researching the book. And I think it, it, there is um, a clear reason in terms of that radicalization happening, and a lot of it is to do with the design of the current technology platforms. And that was Jordan Zhao discussing their new book with Grace Tan. And sadly, that's all we have um, 
that's that's all the time we have for this morning. I hope you've enjoyed the best of 2022 for Wednesday breakfast and tune into next week's show with plenty of other guests and discussions. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.